So if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out to Matthew 25, okay? I wanted to do this little opposite we've done over the last few weeks. You know what? I think I want that. Um, Matthew 25 is the scripture we're in. We looked at Isaiah 58. We looked at James 1 over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we want to look at Matthew 25, an incredible, incredible scripture um, that I want to share uh, with you today. In, in order to do that, I want to set the table a little bit about what's going on in the book of Matthew as we get into this scripture and into this chapter, okay? Uh, the first thing is we want to understand that in Matthew 23 is where Jesus was talking to uh, the teachers of the law, okay? Jesus was being quizzed by the Pharisees. Specifically in chapter 23 is where the Pharisees looked at him, tried to trap him and said, okay, if you know everything, what's the greatest commandment of all these? And Jesus responded, do you remember? Greatest commandment is to love God, basically with everything you got, and to love others as yourself. And then he goes on to say, all of the laws and the prophet hang on these two things. He says, the most important thing you can do before, you, whether you worship or observe the Sabbath or fast or all these rituals we do, everything we typically do in church, uh, he says, the greatest thing you can do is to love God and to love others. And that all the laws of the prophets, all the rules, all the rituals, everything we have literally uh, hang on those two things. The word hang comes from a Greek word that means a hinge. So it's like a hook on a wall with your hat hanging on it, or, or that if that's gone, it doesn't hold any water. And so Jesus is talking to Pharisees in, in, in chapter 23 about this, and then he goes on to warn the teachers that they're missing it, and they're about to miss it even more. And he goes on to warn them with their problems and the things uh, that they were doing, and then he leaves there in chapter 24, and he goes to the Mount, Mount of Olives, and he begins to teach those who are following him. He begins to teach them specifically about the end of time. All right, he had been teaching a lifestyle, talking about loving, about coming under salvation and all these things. And now he's beginning to teach specifically about the end of time and what that's going to uh, look like. He gave uh, them all a call to, to persevere, that there would be some tough times that were coming ahead, that were going to come. All right, and then he also gave, began to teach in parables, that explaining, first of all, uh, to be ready. If you've heard the parable of the ten bridesmaids, he talks about five of them had their lamp and their oil, and they were ready. And the other five just had their lamp, but they didn't have their oil. And that those who didn't have their oil were shut out. Very symbolic of, uh, of being ready for the end of time when, when Christ uh, returns. And then it went to another parable talking about the faithful managers. And Jesus was saying that there is a task, there is a thing that I, that I, that I want you to do that I'm entrusting you with. And, and I'm going to ask you to be faithful to that. And, and he challenged them to remain faithful uh, to, those, to those things. And then after he challenges them to be ready because the end was coming and, and to be faithful, Matthew 25 hits. And the story about the sheep and, and the goats. And it's set in in Matthew 24, verse 12. Just give you this verse. It's kind of set in in this mold. He, Jesus is saying there's a lot that's going to happen, a lot that's going on, a lot of false teaching and false leading and all these things. And, and basically saying our religion is going to get pretty corrupt. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 24, it says, because of the increased wickedness, all that he was talking about, he says the love of most will grow cold. And he said that's going to be the condition of where we are, that, that the love of most is going to grow cold. And then he comes with chapter 25. We're going to look at in just a second. And then directly following chapter 5, I want to show you what this is sandwiched in between. Jesus' life, his warning, his call to persevere, his call for us to be faithful uh, uh, to him and what he is literally, literally entrusting us, okay, with. 
and then Matthew 25, and then afterwards begins uh, the journey to the cross. Directly afterwards, you see the betrayal. Directly after, afterwards, we see uh, the upper room with the first uh, Lord's Supper of communion. Uh, directly a- after that, you see um, the, the trial and the crucifixion of, of Jesus. And so this is sandwiched. It's the transition point in which he goes from those two things. In verse 31, it says this, and I'm just going to read it because this, this scripture teaches itself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory. This is Jesus talking. And remember, he, he's already said all these things. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Verse 36, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? In verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are accursed, and do the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is not messing around here. As much as I want to just soft sell this and say everything's going to be all right, this is what Jesus said. Verse 42, For I was hungry and gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And then they'll say, but Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? When did we do that? In verse 45, he says, it says, he will reply, I tell you the, you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Let's pray. God, there are, there are some scriptures that are really hard sometimes to deal with. And there are some scriptures that are just truth, and it just rubs up against who we are. And, and sometimes we don't know what to do with them. And sometimes the tradition of our faith, as we've heard things throughout the years of our lives, uh, we've come to a certain understanding about them. Um, but God, I just pray that you would show us what you want us to know through the scripture. And that, God, we would prepare our hearts to hear a word from you. God, I just pray uh, that you would do what you want to do with it. That we would accept the fact that you are God and that we simply are not and that we need you. So may we look at this word with as, with as much authority as we could possibly look at. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I mentioned just a second ago the scripture uh, honestly teaches itself. It, it really does. It, it teaches itself more than a lot of scriptures do. If you were to just go through the Greek of this, of this passage, um, it would pretty much say what it says, you know? It, uh, you, you, you would say you, you fed them in 
in Greek and translated would be you fed them. You know, I mean, it's really, it's really direct. So I can try and stand up here and look all, you know, smart and everything. But it's pretty, it is, it is what it is. And yet there are still three perspectives that I want to look at today that I think shed some light on how um, we can begin to receive this word. And, and, and what we can then uh, do with it uh, as well, okay? Uh, three different perspectives. What I would love for you to do is um, turn over the note, that the uh, scripture you have in your, in that insert in your bulletin, and there's no outline, shoot me, sorry. Um, but I would love for you to write these thoughts down, okay? I would really love for you to write these down. We've been a little busy this week. Uh, with hurricane stuff, and I started to scramble and say, oh, I want to give everybody an outline. I'm like, no, you know what? They got to have an outline. You know, I'm, they're going to have to hire a new pastor because, all right, so, and I love outlines. Anyways, here we go. Let's look at the scripture, three perspectives. The first one is holistically. I just want to look at this holistically because a lot of times we proof text, we pull scripture out of context, and, and we don't look at the full messages of, of what, what is going on, especially as, as Jesus is teaching. And we just pull something and we take it literally for just that moment and we don't listen to it and how it's couched and how it's phrased. We, we all of a sudden say, well, that, that, because that says that, uh, that's his, his purest sense, even though it, you know, the Captain Dakota ring is two uh, chapters earlier for that passage. And so I want to look at it holistically in context of the entire message of the gospel. It's kind of, kind of in a mega theme kind of way. So write down number one, holistically. Okay, one of the first things we need to understand that is new about this scripture is that Jesus is moving on from just saying that he is God because he has been saying that, remember? He's been getting a lot of trouble for it too. People did not want him to be God. And he kept saying, you know, I'm God the Son, you know, through everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm teaching, I'm doing this. Here in this scripture, not only does he say that he's God, but he also claims, I am also judge. That's a very important thing we don't want to miss in this scripture. Jesus is saying, I am also judge. Okay, I love you. I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna judge injustice. I'm gonna, uh, uh, every ounce of who I am in love is gonna be seen in this, but I need you to know that it is, that I am the one who will judge. All right? And that's a very important thing for us to understand because not just for our understanding, but also uh, what he was teaching everyone else at that time. Okay, it was, a, it, was a, it was a new thing. The second thing I want you to see holistically here First of all is that Jesus is judge, write that down. Second thing is that it is not saying we are saved by works. Hear me when I say that. It is not saying that if you go feed people and you clothe them and whatever, that that by itself is enough to save you. This is not what it's saying. And the reason it's not saying that is because then it would counter everything else in the Bible that we've read and that we've studied, okay? It's not saying that. We're gonna talk about what it is saying here in just a moment, but it's not saying saved by works. So here's why, that's working backwards. All right, but we'll talk about what, what it is right now. What it is saying is that there will be evidences of faith in our lives. There will be evidences of faith in our lives. And, and you know, Bible is very clear, it teaches very clear that, that God desires for us to know that we have eternal life. That God's plan is not for you and I to walk through life wondering whether or not we're really saved. And if we were honest with each other, a lot of us do that. I did it for years. I probably asked Jesus to save me 300 times when I was in high school because I wasn't for sure. And, and what it did is it took my focus completely off what God wanted me to do and kept it completely on me. God wants you to know. Anybody relate? There's like a little snicker of, hey, that's me too, huh? Um, it, it, but it's, what it is saying is that there are some evidences of faith that will eventually manifest in your life if you're a follower of Christ, okay? The first one is, do, this is kind of like 
1CA is uh, the first evidence. Did you get the holistic is one? A, or A is saying that Jesus is judged. B is we're not saved by work. C is there's evidence of faith. And A from C is this. Evidence, first of all, is a transformed, it's a transformed heart. That there will be a transformed heart. It's probably not going to be automatic. Probably not going to happen right off the bat, but there will be a transformed heart. And I want to share something with you, a confession. This has been a, this was a struggle, a huge time, a huge, a long time in my life. Even as a pastor, I struggle with the fact that I cared about people, but not enough, honestly, to make major sacrifices in my own life, okay, to put them in front of mine. And I think a lot of believers do that. And here was the struggle. I was willing to, but I really didn't want to. I mean, you know, does anybody, can anybody relate with that? And we feel dirty and bad, and we're like, well, that's what started. Well, maybe I'm not really saved because I would rather do this with my money than this. <laughs> and, and, and as I looked at a lot of the journey of my life, I, I would look back and say, okay, because of my faith, my life is definitely different. I know that. It is different. There's, there's something drastically different about my life than if I would not have found faith in Christ when I was six years old. I know that. There's a different path that I've gone down. But there was a moment as an adult that I sat back and I looked and I said, but my life does not feel transformed, my heart. And I struggled with that for a while, okay? But we'll come back to what you do in that instance because I think, I think a lot of us are there more. We feel bad, it's like, you know, I wanna help with Hurricane Ike and all that jazz, but you know, I just, it's a really good game on tonight, you know, <laughs> whatever. I, it is what it is, all right? So CA is transform hearts and really, really caring about others. And the second one, evidence of faith is simply gonna be obedience. Jesus gave us a command to love others. He said, as you have loved me, so you must love one another. A new command I give to you. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is commanding us um, to live. And, and, and that's okay. Sometimes it just takes an effort to just do something and to just make a sacrifice and to just spend time with him and get up early or whatever you got to do to make that happen. Uh, uh, evidence is a transformed heart and o- obedience. The title of this message today is Living a Life of Significance, okay? Uh, everyone I know is at one point or another going through a, a stage in life where they are searching for significance in life. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? What is my purpose? What am I, there's a search. There is a, this search for significance in, in our life. And I think a great question to ask is, are, are we trying to find significance? Whose eyes are we trying to find significance in? Is it other people that they think we've done something significant? We struggle with that. Is it ourselves that how I measure because of how I was raised that, that my life is significant because I, my life looks like this, 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 and this? Okay, or are we really concerned about having a life that seems significant in the eyes of God? Those are tough questions because of the answer. In a real gloves off kind of way. I think a lot of us have struggled with that. Whether or not we really have a desire uh, to live a significant life in God's economy. Not just throwing around Sunday school words or whatever, just truly in God's economy. So as we, we look on, I, I want to think about this. As Jesus was looking at the scripture, as he was teaching the scripture, he was serving the field of that culture. He was looking at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he was speaking their language, okay? He was speaking to their heart. 
He was speaking to their minds, and he was speaking to their actions, the way they lived their life. There was a really big thing that Jesus, he was very specifically addressing the people uh, uh, right there. And as we apply God's word to, to ourselves, I think we need to do the same. We need to look at the condition of ourselves. We need to look at the condition of our nation and where we really are. We need to look at the condition of our church. At large, big church, kingdom church, the condition of, of maybe the American church, as well as our own church. And I think in order to do it, we have to look at it as individuals, okay, uh, as well. So if we were to look at who we are to figure out how we apply this scripture, let's ask the question, um, how are we doing? You know, how, how are we? Better yet, here's a better question, I think, who are we? What are we known as? The American church. What are we known as? How do others view us? I was in the military for a while, and so I served overseas, specifically a couple times in Germany, and I'll tell you what they think of us. <laughs> it's not necessarily, you travel the outside view. Okay, so let's stop thinking about that. Let's just think about ourselves. What can we learn about our culture and where we are? Okay, just where, what can we learn from that? Well, the greatest educators in America is what? The TV, that's right. Uh, no, it's, it's true. I mean, if you want to learn about who we are as a people, uh, look at your TV. I saw a commercial the other day uh, by Discover Card. Have you seen this commercial? It said, it led commercial with this. Uh, it led with this. We are a nation of consumers. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what it said. Those are the experts. They've studied the trends. They know who we are. And they have realized there's a blatant thing like that that kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit because it's true. Um, they know that it's worth throwing that out there because it's, it's true. All right? And I don't think having stuff, I want you to hear me this. I do not believe having nice stuff is wrong. Okay? But what that is and how important that is to us, that is when it becomes wrong. And what we do with what we do have, just like Matthew said uh, a couple weeks ago when he taught, what did he say? Some of the effect of you are where you are because that's where you've been sent. And what you have is enough for God to glorify himself through. Close enough, Matthew, got the heart of it. Okay, um, what are we doing with what we really do? Oh, here's, here's one. Did you see, did you see uh, the new, um, what, one of the TV companies, it says, it said, change your TV change your life. I'm not kidding you. That's right now. Really? Wow, it's that easy? Okay. Here's the truth. Here's the truth, guys. Here's the truth. Now let's go back to Matthew 25. It is exactly opposite of that attitude. You could not get any more polar opposite than that attitude. And that's, I want it to be. I want to be able to go, hey, that really goes really cool with me just getting all this stuff, but it just doesn't. <laughs> Because I'm selfish and I'm, you know, I'm depraved and all this stuff. Through Christ, I'm not. But, you know, that's just, it, it is what it is. And, and, and we need to know that Jesus, okay, is talking about something directly opposite. And this is a very, very big deal because he's literally talking about something that we will be held accountable for one day. In all eternity. And I just want to sweep that under the rug and just pretend that this scripture really isn't there, but it is. So specific, first of all, holistically. Secondly, second, I want to look at this scripture specifically. What is going on in this writing? Who is Jesus talking about? And this may be new to you because it was new to me as I began to research and pray through some of this. Okay? In culture, in history, there are many theologians who argue that Jesus 
is setting the table for what is to come. We all can agree with that. And if you look through a lot of the parables and a lot of what he was teaching, he was setting the table for the beginning of the church and for the apostles to go out and the disciples to be equipped and for them to go out and begin after his resurrection, the New Testament church, what they called the way. All right, so this was this new covenant that he was ushering in through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus is preparing his people. Specifically in this scripture, many argue that Jesus is specifically speaking about the apostles that he is sending out to spread his word. Because they were called to go, okay, they were called to go with nothing but the message of Christ. And so when they went out, they had no clothes, they had no food, they had no shelter, they had nothing. And they were his brothers with his message and they were being sent out. I've never heard this before. I've never thought about it. I've been praying about it and looking into it. It's very possible that this specifically is what Jesus is talking about. The reason why that's important for us today is because he's saying if we do not receive that, if we do not take them in, okay, uh, then there will be judgment for that. What Jesus is teaching us, I believe, through this parable, one of the key things specifically in this culture and in this time as he's preparing for the church to come is for us to understand, okay, that we cannot just accept Jesus and ignore his way. That we cannot just say, listen, messenger, I want to accept your Jesus, but you can't, you're not going to affect my life. I'm not going to change who I am. All right, specifically that may be exactly what he's, he, he, he is talking about there. And, and I want to capture it in this way. When, when I became a believer at six years old, um, someone said to me, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. And, and all I understood at that time was that I couldn't get to heaven on my own. And I, understand some, I understood somehow that I, I just didn't deserve it and I couldn't get there. And I really believe with childlike faith. I think it's just so beautiful that God is so great that that's what he does. Okay. But the older I got, the more I began to realize that I had no problem with Jesus being my Savior. I had a problem with Jesus Jesus being my Lord. Because Savior means I got fire insurance, I'm safe, I'm forgiven. You're going to hear fire insurance a lot because that's how a lot of times we live. Um, Savior versus Lord. A Lord is someone with authority, an agenda, a plan that we submit to, or there's trouble, <laughs> Savior and Lord. That's what this message uh, is about, all right? Specifically, it's what it's about. There are three points in there. If you didn't catch it, I'm sorry. Okay. The third one, practically, I just want to put some, some meat on this bone, I guess, on how, what we do with that. Um, my oldest son right now, he's in fifth grade, and he is adored by our youngest son, who is in first grade. And, I mean, he could hang the moon. I mean, if Gavin would just sit there and punch him in the stomach all day, he'd love it because he got the attention, you know. And, uh, but what's going on right now is that Gavin is beginning to be a little bit, don't tell him, don't, hey, I hear you being, because they don't like that. Um, he's beginning to be kind of mean in his words and how he acts with them, and he kind of yells at them a lot, and, 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 and the other day, uh, we confronted him on this, and, and we asked him, why are you doing this? Why are you being so mean, you know, to your little brother? You know he adores you. You know all of these things. And he, and he literally said, well, Dad, that's just how fifth grade boys are. 
It's funny, but it's true. <laughs> but as a parent, there's a reason I tell you the story. As a parent, doing something very specific in this. I'm talking to Gavin because I want him to take care of his little brother. And I want him to play a role in encouraging him and strengthening him and giving him confidence and helping know that he's loved. Okay, specifically, I'm wanting to do this. In this situation, I want to change the way they treat each other. I want to change it because it's wrong. Okay, practically, as a parent, I am also shaping my son. And hopefully, it changes the way he parent one's that one day. It changes the way he treats people he's never met. It just changes his character and his demeanor. And the impact from these experiences are huge. The reason I mention that is because just by hearing that maybe Jesus was talking about his disciples specifically as he was doing something, for us to understand there's amazing dual purpose here. That you just don't throw out the fact that he was talking about the poor and those who don't have shelter and all that. It's both and. He really is talking about it. And it really is about them, and it really is about eternity in our lives and how we're supposed to be as he is shaping as a heavenly father, how we're supposed to live. When he sees something that's not right, and he wants to change it. What was that scripture? Matthew 24, 12, I think when Jesus said this, I, th- I wonder if it just broke his heart because of the increased wickedness the love of most will grow cold. I think this is one of the ways he just wants to change our hearts, change who we are. So, closing thought, kind of goes back to my confession about not wanting to do some things. Uh, a gentleman told me one time that there's this threefold matrix of life that is the, and it was kind of country hick the way he said it, but this is true. He said, you got the, you got the ought to's, right? And then you got the need to's, right? And then you got uh, the want to's. And I had a serious case of not having the want to's, okay? And I struggled with it because I really knew, I'd studied the Bible enough to know that I, that, I, that I ought to. And most of us are there. We know we ought to. We ought to pursue uh, God in his ways for to see how he's going to transform us beyond. Even if we've grown up in church and we're totally in love with Jesus, and, but we still, I think the Bible is calling us to really dig in and look at what we're doing with some of these specific things, okay? And, and then maybe we get to that point where finally we just get, you realize, I need to do this. If I don't do this, whether it's just out of obedience or whatever, something's wrong here. I'm going to be held accountable uh, to that. And then from there, you begin uh, it's another sermon of how to get there, but I just believe God begins to change your heart. I believe he really does. I believe then he begins to change your heart once we go through that process of really believing his word we ought to, to understand that we really need to. There's more at stake than just, you know, looking cool to everybody else. And then, you know, it can really change our heart for people we never thought we'd have compassion for. And here's the thing. I really always felt guilty for that. I mentioned that. And the reason I want to talk about this briefly is because I think a lot of us feel guilty. If you're a believer, you've been a Christ follower, and you realize your whole life is about you, even the way you worship is about you, the way we want it. I want church a certain way. I want this song. I want to do this and that, whatever. I want to get out on time, and I want to start, you know, whatever. That's, 
I want to get out on time because my kids got to go to bed. I know it's school night, so we're hurry. Um, um, I always felt guilt. I always felt condemnation for that. And yet Paul told us that he continues to work out his salvation with much fear and trembling. He's killing us if it is a process. And that's okay. It's going to take a while. It's going to take some struggle. And then recently, this week, I, I think this was of God, when he just he reminded me of what happened directly after this teaching. That after the betrayal, Jesus went... After the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he went to the garden, and he prayed alone. Remember that? He prayed alone. And um, do you remember what he prayed? One of the things that he prayed, and if, if you haven't said, you may have missed this. He, he says, he said, he said, Dad, if at all possible, he says, take this cup from me. There's a moment where Jesus stood before God, said, God, if there's any other way to do this than to take my blood, will you do it? You ever thought about that? That's what he said. If at all possible, take this cup from me. But here's the difference. Instantly he said, but Father, not my will, but yours. And he died for you and me. Even Jesus came to the point where he struggled a little bit. And so I, I don't want us to sit here and just feel like we're all preaching to each other, whatever. Okay, I'm only preaching, but I'm, li- I'm, I'm feeling this too. Um, I hope you get a little comfort from that, but then get encouragement and direction from the difference maker was he sought significance in God's plan. And that was the difference.